Good morning. This morning's scripture will be from Mark 1, verses 29 to 39. Please join with me now. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him to all who were together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were there with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go out to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This morning, I'm thankful for the word, that we can hear it, and that we can spend time reflecting upon it. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit of God works by his word, and I pray that he would work in our midst this morning. So I hope you'll keep your Bibles open this morning to Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 29, as we work our way continuing through the gospel of Mark together. I want us to remember, right at the top of our time in this passage, the central sort of thesis statement of the gospel of Mark. In the gospel of Mark, we are told who Jesus is, and why he came. In the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please remember this. Remember this statement as we work our way through this passage, because it gives us perspective and understanding upon what Mark is doing in writing our passage this morning in the whole of the book. And there are really two aspects to what we see in this verse and in our passage this morning. That Jesus comes to serve, in our passage, to heal and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a further, deeper, profound, and climactic way of his serving. Watch for that in our passage this morning. We see all of this at play. Jesus is serving throughout the whole of the day. We'll see that together as we walk through the passage. And even as we see Jesus going about healing, casting out demons, he doesn't waver from preaching the gospel, nor he doesn't waver from his central purpose of giving his life and accomplishing all of the promises of the gospel that he's proclaiming. This is what we'll see this morning. So let's spend time in prayer, and then we'll turn again to our passage. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help. We ask that as we pay attention to your word, that you would help our hearts and our minds. I know seven days later, I'm still affected by daylight savings, and I'm inclined to be a bit sleepy this morning. Something tells me I'm not the only one. We need your help. Lord, we have minds that wander after far more than just sleep. We have minds that wander after worry, after looking for helps that are lesser helps. Even as we've confessed our sin to you, we're still prone to wander. We ask for your help this morning. 
We ask more than just that we would be hearers, but your spirit would cause us to be doers, and particularly the doing of faith, that we would believe, that we would trust the first gift of the spirit to us, the gift of faith. Lord, cause us to trust you and to walk in your ways, to see you for who you are and live in light of Christ and his gospel this morning. Thank you. We trust you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the things I observed as I was looking at this passage is actually just sitting there waiting for us to notice that the word immediately, right? It happens over and over again. It's actually already been happening in previous passages. We saw in the previous passage back in verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. We see immediately show up a few times in our passage this morning. We see Jesus busy morning, noon, and night. Now, Jesus is busy, and he's busy serving. The day actually began, the day that we're in in our passage this morning, actually began in our passage last week, where he arrives in Capernaum, probably on a Friday afternoon, and then on the morning of the Sabbath, that Saturday morning, he gets up, and immediately he goes to the synagogue. And when he gets to the synagogue, what does he do? Well, he begins to preach. He's the visiting rabbi, and he begins to open up the truth of the word to them. And when he does so, he speaks with authority on that morning in the synagogue. Now, one of the things, as Jesus is busy on that synagogue morning preaching, I can attest to you and those of you who have preached before, it's exhausting. We often have friends over on Sunday afternoon. And we enjoy some lunch together, but I'm always quite honest to say that while I'm very excited to be hanging out together, my hope is that we would be refreshed together. And when you come over to my house on a Sunday afternoon, one of the ways that you will find me refreshing myself is I will have my feet up on the coffee table sitting on a couch. So you're welcome to come over, but we're sitting on couches together, all right? This isn't some sort of formal meal because I'm tired. Just got done preaching on a Sunday morning. And if you're part of the church and you've been laboring together, you're probably a bit tired too. And with how long I preach, you're probably quite tired. You're welcome to come and join and we can refresh together. It's a long day already and it's only morning. Well, Jesus enters into a very long day. After preaching in the synagogue, it's time for the noon meal. So he goes over to a house. Picture the scene. He's tired. He's been preaching. There's a lot of conversation. There's a, a big uproar that takes place in the synagogue that day. It's not just any, any old day in the synagogue. There's been a demon cast out that morning. It's been a long day already, and they're ready for the noon meal. They return from synagogue. It's time for the meal, and they arrive in Simon's home. We see that in verse 29. Immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with the other two new disciples, James and John. And whether they find, they find Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. They don't find a beautiful hot meal already after synagogue. They find someone sick. Now, one of the notes I just want to make real quick, Simon, I'm going to mess up this morning, and numerous times I'm going to call him Peter. It's not really a mess up. It's just that Jesus changes his name to Peter at a later date. And so you may see me kind of alternate a little bit, talking about Peter's home. That's also Simon in our passage this morning. 
And one of the things about this home is we actually have quite a collection of archaeological finds in Capernaum in this period. Not only do we have a synagogue that appears as though it was likely the synagogue that Jesus actually preached in on that day, but we also have an archaeological evidence of a home with a large courtyard in the center that's been discovered with Christian writing on the walls. And that home is basically just across the street from the synagogue. So we can kind of picture with some of this archaeological evidence, we can picture Jesus just making this short walk with his disciples. And probably there's a lot of people curious about what's going on with all that happened in the synagogue that day, already paying attention to where this rabbi is staying. Now this place, as we have it described, is Simon Peter's home. And it becomes for him a sort of base for ministry during his time in Galilee. Now, just a side note. It's very much so a side note. If we have, we're talking about Simon's mother-in-law, that means that Peter is married. There are, in the scriptures, something that we have to see, but often gets passed over. There are many women, likely including Peter's own wife, certainly his mother-in-law that are mentioned throughout the account of the Gospels. And many of these women would become particularly precious disciples of Jesus and servants of the ministry of the Gospel, just as Simon's mother-in-law would become, not just the object of healing, but a servant of the Christ in our passage this morning. Now, we have a beautiful scene that takes place in verse 29, verse 30. She's lying ill. Immediately, they told him about her, and he came, and he took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve him. When Jesus arrives at the home, instead of an afternoon meal, he finds Simon's mother-in-law ill with fever. And it's striking how normal what happens next is. He doesn't do anything but simply help her out of bed. There's no special incantation. There's no special ritual and lighting of candles and words that have to be said in a particular order as if this was some sort of magic that was taking place. He gives a simple hand of aid, and he helps her out of bed. Now, I think that there is an intentional and incredible warmth a kindness, a nearness, and a simple beauty to this miracle. There is a contrast to charlatans that's taking place in this passage. A simple, compassionate, incarnate God to reach out and touch this woman. We're going to see that thread run through many of the miracles that we see in the coming weeks. It's no less astounding for its lack of incantations. Perhaps it's more so for how simple of a miracle it is. A simple extension of a hand to a woman in need. And the work of compassion is effective when it comes from the hand of the king, Jesus. 
We see Jesus' nearness, the nearness of his kingdom, runs like a thread through the gospel of Mark. And here, Jesus is so near that he simply reaches out a hand to a woman with a fever. And it gives us a glimpse of the nature of kingdom compassion, a, a real nearness of the king to those who are in need. Now, where Jesus draws near, he offers his hand, he lifts, I don't even know if offers his hand is quite the right word, it's a bit of a euphemism, right? He, he takes her hand, right? And he lifts her out of the bed, and she's healed. And what happens? Immediately, she begins to serve him. What happens next is how we know that the healing not only worked on her body, but was also bearing fruit in her soul. This is the way of Jesus, not just to amaze, not just to just astound, but to truly connect the one that he helps to himself in body and soul. It's not even the next sentence. It's simply a comma later. And this woman, so recently touched by the compassion and power of Jesus, is filled with a servant's heart herself. The servant reaches down and touches her, and she rises up, a servant of the king. So recently sick in bed, she's now up preparing a meal for her son-in-law and a new friend, the preacher, This Jesus, this desire to serve is always the result of Jesus' grace in a person's life. A desire to serve the king, the helper, the miracle worker, the savior. There's nothing that we can do to deserve or repay the grace of God. Hear me on this. She doesn't say, wow, you healed me of a fever. How much does that cost? right? It's not the nature of this transaction. Having the grace of God work upon her connects her to the grace of God so that she is overwhelmed with a desire to contribute her service to him. There's nothing that we can do to deserve or repay the grace of God, but we will never tire of serving as a response of gratitude to amazing grace. Hear me on that again. We will never tire of serving as a response of gratitude as long as we remember amazing grace. There's a a story of a, a very talkative woman in the congregation of Charles Spurgeon. And Charles and perhaps others challenged her, asking her why she was always talking about Jesus, talk, 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 talk about Jesus all the time. And she says this, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Christ has changed my life and he shall never hear the end of it. (laughs) I wonder if that's what this woman was doing who was healed of this fever on that day by the compassion of a rabbi who came home with her son. He touched me and he lifted me out of bed. Man, all I want to do is the only thing I know how to do. I just want to serve him for a little while. I wonder if he ever heard the end of it. The day begins with Jesus serving the purpose of the Father by teaching in the synagogue. That's what he says that he went out to do. He's going out to teach, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he does so. He teaches with such authority that the demons begin to cry out, and he casts them out with the same authority. 
And then the day continues with Jesus revealing the love of the Father in a simple gesture of compassion and healing. Jesus is tired. He's working all day long, serving the purpose of the Father in sending the Son. That is the thread that works its way through the Gospel of Mark and all of the epistles and the explanation of who Jesus is. Jesus is the servant of the Father. And the Father's will is redemption and a love for the people. So Jesus serves the goal of redemption. And he does so with a love of the people. We have a morning of service. We looked at that detail last week. We have an afternoon of service. Perhaps a few moments of time on the coffee table sitting on the couch in the later afternoon before evening comes. It's the end of the Sabbath and we have uh, approaching an evening of service. Jesus has been preaching in the morning, healing in the afternoon, and here comes an evening of service in verse 32. That evening at sundown, at the conclusion of Sabbath, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. Like, here's your big reward. Here's your, for me, my big Monday off. They all show up with every single problem known to the city. Thank you for preaching and healing, sir. That evening they brought all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. He was busy. We see Jesus doing this so often throughout the first half of the Gospel of Mark. Even as his, per- his very purpose, his very own stated purpose, is to preach the Gospel of the Kingdom of God, we find him healing and casting out demons. And yet, part of my intention this morning is to demonstrate that Jesus' miraculous demonstrations are not the ultimate center of his ministry of service. I'll say it again. Part of my purpose this morning in looking closely at this passage is as much as we see Jesus, every town he goes to, he winds up healing. He winds up casting out demons. He winds up working miracles. That is not at the center of his purpose of service to the Father. It isn't that healing and casting out demons is some sort of sideshow to his real deal. It's actually absolutely central to Jesus' ministry. It's a demonstration of his power. It's a demonstration of his authority. It's part of the means by which he's pushing back the darkness, the effects of the enemy in these cities to which he goes with the gospel. But at the same time, the people don't yet understand how the Father intends to bring about lasting and complete healing and restoration through the Son. They don't yet understand that. They're coming to the door with diseases. But they don't understand what's really wrong. These healings are a preview. Everyone who was healed on that day, to put it another way, that day in Capernaum, all who gathered at that door, healed, actually healed, exercised of demons, will one day get sick and die. They're healed, but they're not cured. They still have a problem. 
They have the problem of the reality of sin and God's judgment upon sin manifest in death, not only in the death of their body, but in the judgment of their soul. And they don't yet understand what Jesus is doing about that. This reality is directly connected to a key question that might arise in the second half of verse 34. You're probably asking it already. What's going on? And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Why not? Why, not, why silence the demons? If all they're doing is saying, we know you, you're the son of God. You see, even the demons know who I am. Why doesn't he let him speak? Well, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. But he's not yet making fully public that he is the Messiah. We're going to see this theme. You're going to hear me talk about it quite a bit during the course of our time in the Gospel of Mark. You might even say that Jesus' proclamation of the Gospel is not yet a complete proclamation. He stands in the line of the prophets in his ministry because his preaching is the preaching of the glorious promise and hope of the Gospel. In addition To the prophets, he's preaching the presence of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? If they would connect the dots, because the king is here. That's why the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because if you reached out your hand, or if he reaches out his hand to you, you could touch him. And yet, he has not yet revealed how he will secure the good news of the promises. He's making the promises. He's unpacking the mystery of the gospel. But he has not yet performed the work of the gospel. Jesus is presenting himself as the son of God. And he has begun to share that the son of God comes to serve. But he hasn't yet fully revealed the nature of that service. And he hasn't yet died. It's so important. There is a work and a very methodical way in which the Son is obedient to the Father in the performance of the gospel, not only the proclamation of it. The public and religious and cultural perception of what the Messiah would be is very different from the suffering servant who is Jesus. And Jesus is careful in the way that he proclaims the gospel, not to sort of end up puffing up a false view of who the Messiah actually is. And so he refuses to allow the demons to speak of him. I'm going to reference James Edwards in his commentary, in the Pillar Commentary series. He explains in his commentary three reasons for Jesus' silencing of the demons. And I think he nails it, so I simply want to hold it out to you. The first thing that he says is that in the demons speaking about the Son of God who is casting them out, it gives the connotations of a military deliverance. That Jesus is going to war here. The word of a Messiah, a king, an anointed one, would then bring swift intervention by the Roman occupation. You could see how this would happen. The demons are rising up, and all the people he's gathering, he sent what is essentially a mob and an army to himself... You can see how that might go badly far too quickly. 
The second reason why he doesn't allow the demons to speak is Jesus came as a servant, not to build a reputation for himself. Now, that's a bit confusing, especially in our day in which I hear people say quite often that one of the things that is our business as a people is to make Jesus's name great. Well, it is. We are his ambassadors and we're supposed to make his name known. But Jesus came as a servant, not to build a great name for himself. Jesus was not building himself as a cultural influencer. Am I communicating? In Isaiah 49, I would encourage you to go and read that during this week. We won't spend a lot of time on it now. But let me just say this about Isaiah 49, particularly verses 1 through 6. That what Jesus is doing is Jesus will have no allegiance by amazement and astonishment. He's not looking to astound the crowd so that he builds a crowd for himself. Third, and I think this is the most important thing that can be said about Jesus' silencing of the demons, is this. Only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. Only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he truly is. It's for that reason that he draws a great crowd to himself. And he doesn't dispel them, but he sends them with news of his name by the power of the Spirit after his resurrection. Because then the people can understand why the Messiah has come and how he has served the people redemption. James Edwards, again, he writes, until the consummation of Jesus' work on the cross, all speculations about him are premature. Do you hear that? Until he does the cross, everything that could be said about him will be misunderstood and be premature. And so Jesus demands silence. He does so in many ways. In three different episodes, he demands that the demons be silent. After four miracles, he tells the people who received the miracle to be silent. Two times, he tells the disciples to be silent. And two times, Jesus withdraws from crowds to escape detection. In addition to today's passage, when in his first big public ministry, he retreats into another city. Clearly, Jesus is doing something here. Again, one more time with James Edwards. Only on the cross can Jesus rightly be known for who he is. Until the confession of the centurion at the cross, all utterances about Jesus are either premature or false. Every single one. We're going to look at one of the most important utterances about Jesus in the confession of Peter. And what Peter knows about Jesus, Jesus is very clear, was revealed to you by God himself. And yet even Peter's confession was incomplete. We'll look at that later in the midpoint of Mark. In our passage, Jesus' service it bleeds from morning to afternoon and then on into the evening. After the sun sets on the Sabbath, the city gathers at the doors and he served the community well into the night. And yet, he has not yet fully revealed nor accomplished the depths and the extent of his service for the people through the performance of the gospel that is his death burial, and resurrection. Are you, are you getting the clarity that is here that might be missed if we weren't paying 
attention. So he works all day long. He's preaching. He's casting out demons. He's healing a woman with a great compassion. He's casting out more demons and healing well into the evening. What does he do the next day? Man, if you got the ball rolling, right? He's got this going. Work what's going on in that city, right? Well, let's check. Verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, I'm thinking sleep in. It's for me, it's Monday. I preached yesterday and it wound up being a long one. Nope. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, by the way, he departed and went to a desolate place and there he prayed. Rising very early in the morning, he enters into a morning of prayer. You know what this is like. You know how often, so often, your day starts quickly and it doesn't stop until sundown. And the next day, all that you want to do is lay in bed all day. That was true of Jesus' Sabbath, preaching, healing, and casting out demons. How instructive for us, how he begins his next day. There's a corrective for me and for you. I think in all of what's happening in these two, three days of Jesus' ministry and life, he refreshes after preaching by being with the people in a home. That's been instructive for me, that, that my way of refreshing is not by running away from the church, but by being with the church and experiencing the freshness of being together as his people. Just don't act me to, expect me to act all pastorly and stuff, you know? Expect me to be a person who's tired on a Sunday afternoon. Expect you to be a person who's tired on a Sunday afternoon. And the second thing, that I think that I can be refreshed by rest. Now, I bet no, should know better than that. I don't sleep well. All right, I'm up multiple times just about every night. I've tried just about everything to try and figure out how to turn off my brain for more than a couple hours and just get some sleep, please. And yet, to this day, I still think that the cure to my exhaustion is to try and sleep in a little bit more. Right? Who's tried this? Don't just sit there looking at me and say, man, he's bad. He's bad. You know. You know. Jesus seems to think something else. He thinks the cure to his exhaustion and the place from which he would be refreshed is by waking early in the morning and spending time with his father. And look what it does. It does something truly profound in our passage. One commentator references E. Stanley Jones. E. Stanley Jones says this. E. Stanley Jones once described prayer as a time exposure to God. Some of you notice the photography reference in that. A time exposure to God. He used the analogy of his life being like a photographic plate which, when exposed to God, progressively bore the image of God in keeping with the length of exposure. Do you hear that? He's being shaped by who God is as he is kept in lengthy exposure to the Father. Jesus, the commentator continues, exposed his humanity to God, even though he needed no more of the fullness of God. He exposed his humanity to God. And that tired, certainly exhausted after a day of work, Jesus was refreshed. By exposure to the Father in prayer. 
The morning of prayer transitions quickly to continued resolve to be about the Father's business. That is the business of preaching and performing the gospel. Look at the pattern of the passage. Jesus, after a day filled with ministry and labor, begins the next day early in the morning with prayer. And then the disciples go out. You can see it in the passage. Simon and those who were with him in verse 36 searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus is like, big deal. I've been looking for the Father. That's what you should be doing. Are you looking for me? Spend time in prayer. Maybe that would be a better result. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For this is why I came out. Jesus spends time with the Father in prayer and immediately hops on the rails of the Father's purpose for him. This is the second time we've actually seen this in Mark. Jesus went out for 40 days into the wilderness. And he was communing with the Father. He was tempted in the wilderness and overcame temptation. He was ministered to by the angels and the Spirit. And what does he do as soon as he's done with a 40-day exposure in prayer to the Father? What does he do? He hops on the rails of the Father's purpose and begins to teach. Again, he goes out to be with the Father early in the morning. And what does he do? He hops right back on the rails of the purpose of the Father to teach. Now, there's something fascinating. We are so easily derailed, and I wonder if it's because we don't spend time with the Father, but we are rather impressed with the crowds. It's certainly happening with these early disciples. You see, Jesus has a booming ministry. Jesus' ministry and popularity are blowing up. You can hear the excitement and the anxiety of the disciples' search for him. Everyone's looking for you. It's working. Jesus, you're a big deal. (laughs) I mean, is Jesus supposed to be impressed that people are looking for him? You've gone viral, they're saying. Your your hashtags are all over this town. Everybody's talking to you, and they're at the house, and they're looking for you again. They want to hear more. But Jesus didn't seem to be excited. Instead, he blows it. He blows it. How many times does Jesus have to completely blow the opportunity to, to explode his popularity in a city? He blows the opportunity to take hold of a pragmatic moment for ministry. You see, we aren't the first culture in history to get excited about popularity. They may not have had hashtags and retweets, but word of mouth has always been the most social of media. And that word of mouth was working its way throughout the community, and he blows it. He refuses to rise the wave of popularity in the city. James Edwards earlier says he would have no allegiance exacted by amazement and astonishment. He says, I'm not going to ride the viral wave. I'm a servant to the Father and his purposes. They're not paying attention to my teaching. They're just paying attention to the fact that I'm trending in the city. Jesus has a more basic work to do, not building a wave of a cult of personality. 
He's spreading the news of a kingdom, good news. And the people don't yet understand. He'll come back and he'll spread the news again. You see, there's a a danger in the cult of personality. Inevitably, the crowds go to such celebrities because of felt needs and self-fulfillment. Inevitably, they self-diagnose what ails them, and then they go to a larger-than-life personality to rescue them from their own felt need. It doesn't really matter what the, the, the... popular person, the cult of personality person is saying, all that matters is what their mind and their heart are longing for. That's all that they can hear is their need. Do you think they really heard the needs, the words of Jesus? Or they only heard their sense of need? But Jesus needs these people to quiet their own thoughts and listen to him and discover the true need. He comes not only with news of rescue, He comes to correct their own perception of what is wrong to begin with. Is that you today? Why have you come to Jesus? Is it possible that one of the things that you need from Jesus is not a cure to your circumstance, but to humble yourself for a moment and say, Jesus, what was your gospel again? What is your rescue How have you saved and what is the effect of that salvation in me? You see, our problem is that we are perishing in both body and soul. And our only hope in life and in death is that we would belong body and soul to God our Father and our Savior Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? He remains focused on the ministry of the gospel and rejects the cult of personality. An essential aspect of the ministry of the gospel is to accurately define what is truly wrong for us. It's one thing to go about announcing a great cure. It's another thing to be clear about that which is wrong to begin with. What's wrong is not that we have what has happened to us. It's not our illnesses or our circumstance. What is wrong is that which has happened in us. That we're sinners and we're rebels against the holy God. We've sung about it this morning. We've read about it and we've prayed through it. May we believe it right now. When we're in need of rescue and healing, we need that for more than just our bodies. We need grace and forgiveness for our soul. For surely there can be nothing more pragmatic, nothing more practical, nothing ultimately more worth sharing than the rescue of eternal souls from sin and judgment. That's pragmatic ministry. That's ministry with perspective that understands the root of the problem. This rescue, Jesus must not only demonstrate his power in miracles and exorcism, he must accomplish the grace by which he might heal. He must accomplish the grace by which he might save. In this, we have the mysterious heart of the healer. So very often, Jesus comes off as very mysterious throughout the scriptures. The people around him, just when they think, they understand what he's doing, and they're ready to come alongside and even help him along a little. Peter's really good at doing this. Jesus 
shows up as a mystery, and they realize they don't really understand what he's doing. They don't really understand his heart. Much has been said about Jesus' compassionate heart of healing. But something quite odd happens. If healing is at the heart of Jesus, why does he leave? That's a mystery. Clearly, he loves. Clearly, he draws near. Clearly, he is compassionate. Clearly, he hates disease. Clearly, he hates the demons. Clearly, he has power to heal. And yet, he leaves. That's a mystery. Yes, Jesus gives his hand to a sick woman, and he heals many. And then he says in verse 38, in the second half of the verse, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Much has been said about this heart of the healer. And and it's said as if we were supposed to develop the same heart of the healer. But we can presume to know what the heart of the healer is by the way our culture would define the heart of a healer. And by not, not by how Jesus actually reveals the heart of a healer. The heart of a healer preaches the gospel even as he seeks the health, the wholeness of the body. We press into the nearness. We press into his compassion. We press into physical rescue and care. But every time it would seem that that miraculous intervention is at the center and the apex of Jesus' ministry, he retreats. Every time it looks like miracle for the body is the great work of Jesus, he leaves town. You see, when we look into the heart of the healer, what we find is the heart of a teacher. More than that, we find a healer who would bring rescue to body and soul. And that is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. The people... They must see Jesus' power and experience a glimpse of his rescue through the healing of the body. But they must hear him preach. For he came to do so much more than heal the body. At some point, Jesus' own compassionate ministry of healing was in danger of becoming a distraction for the very purpose for which he came. From what is ultimately needed for the people. For that is why he came out, and he remains dogged in this ministry. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what is wrong according to the Christ? Do you understand that what is wrong is not the circumstances around you? You are not the, the victim of this world. You are the perpetrator of sin against the holy God. That is what is wrong with the world. And it causes us to victimize others. It just so happens to be that we're all doing it. That's what's wrong with the world. And we are in need of far more than somebody to put a band-aid on our physical problems. Our emotional problems. Our sense of hurt. And the way that someone has done damage to us at some point in our life. We, We need that. We need more than that. We need redemption. We need rescue from the wrath of God by the very love and grace of God made known in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at Jesus in this passage. In Simon Peter's home, 
He's so clear, so near, so kind and gentle. At Simon's door, he's powerful and authoritative in the presence of both disease and demons. And then very early in the morning, he's humble in communion with God. And from this place, he remains steadfast in the service of God. Jesus' ministry is not a cult of personality. It is a servant humbled before the purpose of the Father. It's a ministry of redemption. And this is what we need. Jesus never strays from that purpose all the way through setting his eyes on the cross. As we look to Jesus, may we not see a cure to what we suppose ails us. May we find a cure to what he has revealed ails us. May we believe Christ and his gospel. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that that there would be a challenge in here. I think that for every single one of us, we, we seek vain efforts at restoration. We're tired, we ache, we're hurt, someone has hurt us. We're diseased. We're suffering physically and emotionally and relationally. And Lord, these are a problem or else you wouldn't heal these things. And yet, may we hear you. May we hear the depth and the richness of the good news that is your gospel. May we confess our sin. Trust in your name. Receive the grace of your death in our place on the cross. And wake up, lifted up by the Savior as one who would serve your name forever out of gratitude. Lord, I pray that you would do this in the midst of all of those who are gathered today, but particularly those who have never believed before. Work by your word and spirit in that heart today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.